Hello and welcome to the first regular episode of the KMO Show. I'm your host, KMO, and this first episode, a trialogue, is prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. I have decided that with this new show, I will not be coming up with titles for individual episodes. They will just be identified by number and by the guests. And the guests in this first episode are Kevin Wolmott, who is a longtime friend of the Sea Realm, and Michael Garfield, who is the host of two podcasts, the Future Fossils podcast and the Complexity podcast, which he creates for the Santa Fe Institute, hereafter abbreviated as SFI. Michael describes himself as a paleontologist and futurist, to which I would add musician, visual artist, event organizer, husband, and father. The show description for his personal podcast, Future of Fossils, reads as follows. Join paleontologist futurist Michael Garfield and an avalanche of amazing guests for deep but irreverent discussions at the edge of the known and knowable. On prehistory and post-humanity and deep time, non-human agency and non-duality, science fiction and self-fulfilling prophecies, complex systems and sustainability, or lack thereof, psychedelics as a form of training for proliferating futures, art and creativity as a service and as inquiry, new episodes on a roughly bi-weekly basis. And then looking at his bio on the Santa Fe Institute website, it reads Michael Garfield, social media strategist, podcast producer. Michael Garfield studied ecology and evolutionary biology as an undergraduate, including seven summers of paleontological fieldwork for the Wyoming Dinosaur Society, say that three times fast, as well as paleontological reconstructions for the University of Kansas Natural History Museum, Tate Museum at Casper College, and Petrified Forest National Park. After 13 years as a scientific illustrator and itinerant transmedia artist, he joined SFI in 2018 to translate complexity science for social media and host slash produce its official podcast. Michael's personal interests include the co-evolution of humans and technology, the role of mind and communication in the self-organization of the biosphere, and major evolutionary transitions like the one we seem to be in now. Our interlocutor, Kevin Wolmott, describes himself as an engineer, a disgruntled writer, and social critic. To which I would add, he is a supporter of local music and unsigned bands, a brewer, and a generous soul. He's a longtime friend of the Sea Realm and a personal friend of Michael Garfield's. It was Kevin who arranged this meeting of the minds, which took place, uh, I think, about a week and a half ago now, at the home of Michael Garfield's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So here is the first part of the conversation that we had that day in Santa Fe. Well, you are listening to the very first episode of the new KMO show, KMO.show. And uh, I guess it's fitting. It's a face-to-face interview. I'm here with Michael Garfield, who is a paleontologist and a futurist and who probably has one foot in the present as well. And also Kevin W., who is basically my guide and uh, protector here in this desert landscape of Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, Kevin, thank you. Thank you for uh, being able to make it. I've, uh, this seems like an awesome opportunity I've been looking forward to. And Michael, thank you. Oh, this is cool. Yeah, I didn't realize it was going to be the first episode of a new show, and now I feel extra special. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've been graced by fate, I guess. It's just a matter of timing. <laughs> fate has to grace me every once in a while for as many slaps as it delivers. Yeah, you know, I see you've got Pronoia over on the shelf there, and mm-hmm. uh, the concept is that hidden forces are working for your benefit, and I feel simultaneously the subject of forces working for my benefit behind the scenes and also malevolent forces looking to trip me up, although oftentimes the things that seem like I've been tripped up and punished and, and done wrong are the things that lead me to future growth. Yeah. And yeah, so that's a complicated and persistent theme in, you know, comparative mythology. And I, I too feel that very strongly. I mean, I I might as well just come out of the closet immediately uh, before I've managed to establish credibility. (laughs) Many of the listeners already know who you are, I think. Okay. And and say that, you know, I, I find 
astrology very fascinating as a hermeneutic practice. I don't know what to make of it in terms of its like ontology and mechanism and so on. But that's the subject of an entire episode of Future Fossils, where I, I argue that it should be a valid study of advanced statistical inquiry in system sciences. Uh, and it's just not for political reasons. But at any rate, the, the reason I bring it up is because there was, uh, when I went through my Saturn return, uh, you know, the famous, like, you know, 27 to 30, when a lot of these famous, these, these celebrities like Jim Morrison and, and Jimi Hendrix died, uh, I, you know, they talk about the Forever 27 Club. You know, uh, Jeff Buckley died at 30. His his father died at 31. So it's kind of within the orb of that transit. And the it manifested for me as being unconstitutionally searched and then brought up on what were both valid and also false charges by Texas police. And I had to make 14 different court visits by the time I managed to get my charges uh, deferred and put on probation and then spent two years on state supervision dealing with the most unbelievably corrupt court that one can imagine where the judge handling my case originally was disbarred for withholding exonerating evidence in a murder trial and the judge that ended up taking my case and putting me on probation was brought up on nine federal charges for selling machine guns to Guadalajara and gangsters. And so anyway, while I'm in this, the bowels of this system, I, uh, I, you know, I, I was working full time professionally traveling it to festivals and suddenly couldn't leave the state. And then like the only way that I could leave the state was Originally, they wanted me to go to AA meetings, which was completely unrelated to my cannabis charges. But in their mind, it's a substance abuse thing. And and I was like, oh, I'll show you substance abuse. <laughs> Just wait until I'm off paper. But no, but they um, they finally accepted that I'm an ordained minister with the Universal Life Church. As am I. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah, I think we actually talked about that at, at Cafecito. Um the, yes, the perks of officiating weddings and so on. But the 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 point of all of that just being that it felt very much like a uh, that kind of mythological crucible, you know, like the imprisonment of Merlin, you know, these kinds of things you see time and time again, you know, the 40 days in the desert or whatever, where, you know, you are up against these unbelievable restrictions and you go through a dark night and it's ultimately good, but of course it's just awful, right? It's just absolutely horrible. So, uh, I, as a, as a, a Capricorn by birth, I'm born on the 8th of January and therefore doubly ruled by Saturn in this system of thinking. I am someone who really appreciates the creative power of constraints. And that's the rant with which I will, Start this conversation. <laughs> the creative power of constraints. I'm always listening to what guests say for an episode title. Mm. So that could be it. We'll see. Yeah. So, something better might present itself. Uh, I I don't know much about astrology. I um, I know lots of very intelligent, creative, admirable people who are really into it. And I'm definitely not one to poo-poo it. I just haven't taken the time to actually immerse myself in it. Well, I mean, Bresney is actually writing another book now, uh, and it's his first on astrology, and it's called Astrology is Real. And he's serializing it on Substack. I haven't moved beyond the paywall because he is going to publish it at some point. And I just want to see it in my own hands. But, uh, yeah, I, th I think between him and Richard Tarnas, there's a pretty I strong argument. I listened to the first part of the audiobook of uh, Cosmos and Psyche, which is astounding. It's yeah. amazing. But then he gets into like the nitty gritty and you just can't do it in an audio book. You got it. It's got to be on a paper. I honestly couldn't do it in paper either. Oh. Like I, I found that his laying out the fundamental piece of why this is in his mind, a paradigm shift from a particular construction of the, the, you know, the delimitations of self and, and cosmos 
and how this means instead that meaning is actually suffused through the cosmos rather than contained and generated by the human brain uh, was really potent. But I encountered most of his historical argument secondhand because at that point it does become very pedantic. He's a great writer. It's yeah. that first part of the book is essentially an essay. It's not really book length, but it is worth the price of, you know, an audible credit, which is what I paid for it. So, yeah. Kevin, you're the strong silent type. Oh here. yeah. I, I keep forgetting that, that cause I'm, I'm just staring over here and you are actually mic'd and uh, will be integrated into this conversation. So Kevin, yes. I, I may not have a huge amount to say because I'm a podcast fan. I've been a podcast fan of both of your podcasts for a long time. I don't, produce a lot of content myself. I just rant on Facebook mainly, but <laughs> there are things I can add here and there. I have a couple of conversational seeds I wrote down, but while we're talking about astrology, before the recording started, we were pointing at John Michael's Greer book on the shelf, and he's a, he takes astrology very seriously. And additionally, he has at least two or three essays out there about the power of limits. He points out that that all strength derives from limits. If you don't have a constraint, you can't get leverage, and without leverage, there's no strength. So he, he's, I strongly recommend those essays. are very well written. Is he also a Capricorn? That because the, you know the Capricorns are supposedly ruled by the knees, and so the the entire cognitive framing of that type is supposedly about leverage and climbing. I mean, he do, he also has a very. Uh, classical sort of Capricorn beard and yes. chin. Yeah, it's got that. He's famous for so the I could be, I could be sort of invalidating myself here by, by, you know, I'm not a professional, but yeah, you're a professional something. <laughs> I mean, you make money. So yes, a professional is somebody who has convinced others that their knowledge is sufficient, that they should be paid for it. Yes. But at the same time, somebody, some skeptic is listening to this and saying, John Michael Greer, Googling it right now. No, oh, as, as soon as we mentioned astrology, the skeptics, not just a Capricorn rage quit. See this guy, <laughs> he's full of it. Why am I listening to this new podcast? I'll go back to the old stuff. Let's I will see. put this on the first several episodes I'm going to put on the old Sea Realm RSS just so somebody will listen to them. Uh, and then hopefully within a few weeks or months, the curation algorithms will do their work. Yes. Interesting. I can't find anything on his actual birthday in 1962. So I might be off the hook for this one. Oh, I'll just ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we've been talking about uh, astrology, which you've mentioned the skeptics, and I've said, yeah, they've rage quit by now. Um, but that brings up the question of epistemology. Mm -hmm. uh, I am firmly of the opinion that one should not believe something just because it feels good to believe it. And I suspect there's a fair amount of that happening in, you know, people who gravitate to astrology. And... Um, you are a paleontologist. You describe yourself as an ontology is the philosophical study of what is. Uh, and I'm, you know, it's, it's intimately connected to epistemology, which is the study of how do we know? Right. Uh, what, what counts as knowledge? What counts as evidence in favor of a proposition or a belief system? Um, and I am one who is probably too focused on what I would call uh, the, the twin concepts of epistemological humility, which is sort of like philosophical skepticism. It's like, I don't know. What do I know? Right. But also epistemological hygiene, which is to say having some filters in place, uh -huh. you know, recognizing when you have been lured into a belief system because it serves some underlying psychological need that you haven't actually articulated or accepted. Um, and I fell prey to that for a decade, basically, with uh, what I would call doomerism, because I've been a techno-optimist for most of my life. But then at a, a low point in my life, I, I discovered peak oil, and this was just after I started podcasting. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in a worldview where I thought, like, I would just savor hot showers, thinking maybe this is the last one. You know, maybe I, I won't be able to shower after this, or, you know, rushing to, to Walmart to buy a big container for fresh water, you know, to have on hand. And... um. And I recognized after a long time in that world, you know, after having basically built a reputation as an, somebody who articulates that viewpoint, that no, 
this is just kind of nihilism and resentment and anger at the system because I don't think I've been treated well by it and I want it to fail. Yeah. And so, well, let me just pass it to you. Epistemology. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, I'm glad that you went there before I did because it would have been inappropriate to psychoanalyze a relative stranger on their own show, <laughs> but, uh, or at all, but it, it does strike me that, uh, you know, listening to the, there is a kind of a profile of people who seem to be attracted to doomer thinking. And I will add myself to that number as someone who is utterly obsessed and unfortunately on record as ex extensively as obsessed with kind of eschatological, you know, uh, like Terrence McKenna wave two kind of thinking, you know, this, uh, you know, the Mayan prophecy and the, the technological singularity in addition to pink oil, I mean, to pink oil and like all of this other stuff. Right. So it's like, there's this sort of melange in my, in my mind of all of, all of those things that really, really preoccupied me at a time in my life when I had gotten out of college, I was transfigured by discovering psychedelics and visionary art and transpersonal and integral philosophies and complex system science and all of this stuff right at the end of my undergraduate program. And then suddenly the letter in my hand to apply for a PhD program in dinosaur science like I never even sent it. I still have it in a drawer because I didn't know, like suddenly as, as in love as I am with being out in the, the badlands of Wyoming and, you know, digging for ancient things, it wasn't going to get me any closer to answers to these questions that had erupted in me over the last couple of years. And I realized at, you know, years into this process of trying to come to grips with living in this question and and then what it means for you know the, finding my way in the wilderness of a post-academic life where I had tried and tried for years to try and find ways to ask these questions within a graduate program and was just repeatedly browbeaten <laughs> over the impossibility of it you know and I think it's easier now I think in a weird way, you know, the, the, uh, descent of academia into the horrible confusion that in which it currently resides. And also the fact that I'm seeing bright young students come up in these programs that didn't exist when I was that age. And I just feel envious of their opportunity. It's a strange kind of thing, but at any rate, the, the, the point was that all of this, questing and mystery was concurrent with my preoccupation with the ontologically weird, you know, the UFOs and fairy lore. And I was, I was living in a house with a poltergeist and then th that I managed to integrate through a, like a kind of a union uh, gestalt shadow process and realized was like somehow something, at least it seemed as though, like as soon as I had gone through the assumption of, of withdrawing this thing back into my own mind, that it stopped shaking my friend's bed at night and it stopped breaking windows in our house. And it's, you know, it was like, it was very, uh, I have no better explanation for that. And yet there's, there's no way to reproduce those findings, you know? So I'm just left with this hanging thread about this major life experience that I had. And then the next year is when, and I've talked about this on my show and uh, on Stuart Davis's show and maybe a couple others, I had a string of UFO encounters. Uh, and so, that were not just me. It was like me and then different groups of friends all hanging out at the same beach at different points in 2006 and seven. And so, you know, I, and I think that this is true for a lot of people. And this is stuff that's been well documented by people like Robert Anson Wilson and our mutual friend, Eric Davis, that like there are these moments when we have, you know, divine invasions or like uh, PKD talks about, or like these eruptions of ontological shock that seem concurrent with 
us having left the tidy Italian garden of one mode of thinking and venturing out into something else, you know, not knowing how to map this new place. And as soon as you leave the map, then... And so, you know, uh, you know, someone who's written really beautifully about this is Tom Robbins in his book Jitterbug Perfume, where, he, you know, the god Pan is a physical entity, but is evaporating over the centuries as the wilderness outside the city walls is mapped with increasing granularity and people stop believing in the gods and they stop paying him homage, you know. And I think that there's I think, you know, Neil Gaiman has written about that in American Gods. There is something I think very very real about that. And so when I think about the collision between epistemology and ontology, I think about Eric Davis and, and high weirdness talks about ontological pluralism and my graduate advisor, Sean Hargens, who spent a lot of time mapping the, you know, over 200 different disciplines and their perspectives on uh, UFOs and other ontologically strange phenomena, uh, weird phenomena properly are um, they both settle into this notion that, it's not simply that uh, epistemologies and like, uh, epistemologies and ontologies are jointed in the respect that different epistemologies actually enact different ontologies in their perspective, like in their in their sort of meta theoretical framing of this. Uh, you actually do move into a kind of different physical paradigm uh, as you behold and in, interact with the world and and enact world spaces i guess interaction with the world is not actually what's going on if you think about it in those terms because uh you know that's like thinking of you in the world as discrete objects but this is this is something else this is something much more intimate and uh unitary and so i find that very fascinating i find it very fascinating you know to think back on what now dennis mckenna regards as utter foolishness about the La Chirera experiments and the notion that they may have imminentized the eschaton. And I think, my God, you know, but like, maybe they did, but it was a local, it was a localized phenomenon, you know, like maybe, you know, these questions I asked Sean Carroll once about, and I'll stop the rant here, but I, I, I Sean Carroll works uh, as an external faculty member at the Santa Fe Institute. And so I was able to have lunch with him once and, and talk with him. And I asked him, what do you think about this critique that, uh, you know, deep field astronomical in imaging has revealed that the fine structure constant is mutable. You know, this thing that's supposed to be uh, independent of space time coordinates. And he had some he had he had some uh, dismissive critique of that. But uh you know, I, I'm not uh, a physicist at the level that I felt like I could actually judge the merits of his critique. So, uh, you know, I have to I have to admit my own susceptibility to the expert identification problem and just accept that. So that's where the epistemology part comes in, too, which is like uh, this guy I've had on both future fossils and complexity, T. Nguyen. Oh my God, I said that was the last thing I was going to say. But anyway, no, uh, T. Nguyen talks about expert identification problems because even experts in one area can't actually identify experts in another area. And so this is like a Mexican standoff uh, as far as social epistemology is concerned. Like we have no way of getting around this with the tools that we have now and that that is the big thing that we're facing as a society is moving from a a kind of modern rational paradigm where we we perceive uh, the empirical methodology as absolute and transcendent to other approaches to the world that we tolerate and re-respect out of a kind of multicultural humanism but then moving into a kind of a deconstructive postmodern stance where it's all against all and nobody has any kind of priority because everything is situational and context-bound and then into this other thing that I, for, you know, I encountered through the work of Ken Wilber and, and, you know, Sean S. Bernhargens and others, which is how do we move from a position of understanding the linguistic turn in philosophy and understanding that all knowledge is, you know, only valid, only all validity claims are only valid for certain observers to something where we can still nonetheless say, confidently 
that some things are true for all observers of a given subset, like a given categorical subset, you know, so like we're, we're getting to a point now where we can say what are and are not statistically, at least to a, you know, beyond a, a confidence threshold, human universals, like there is one society that spatializes time with the future behind them and the present in front of them. Right. But everybody else has it the other way. So that's like more or less a universal every, you know, Steven Pinker talked about this in the blank slate. Like every, every culture has words for one, two, and many, you know, so there are some kind of basic things about us as human beings. We respect grandparents, or at least we, we acknowledge that we should. Uh, that's a very, very human trait, but these are not necessarily, I mean, like orcas do that. Uh, elephants do that. There are things about those, animals and the way that they experience the world that I'm really excited to break out of our parochial human thinking as soon as we find better ways to communicate with them. You know, I think that they're, and that's, you know, that's what my friend Jade seven uh, said to me one time. Uh, she, she works here in town uh, at the, with the, the folks at the Institute of Ecotechnics. And, uh, you know, she said to me once that the, uh, if I were an intelligent alien civilization, I would decide whether or not to engage another civilization to initiate contact with them on the basis of whether or not they had learned to communicate with other intelligent life forms on their own planet. And so that's where I think I'll end this is just like, that's, you know, that's, that's what I think we might be kind of, you know, it's interesting that there's this spate of uh, public discussion about UFOs at the same time that there's a spate of public discussion about artificial intelligence at the same time that we're talking about possibly using artificial intelligence to establish a machine learning translation layer between, you know, human and dolphin and these kinds of things. Like it's, it's all happening at once. And I think that that's, that's just the portrait that I would like to paint to set whatever we end up talking about in the, Onological and epistemological. <laughs> I was just going to chip in that creating an artificial intelligence uh, would affect every single aspect of our society because humans' intelligence affects every single aspect of our society. So that would be like a, a second opinion or a different, you know, different point of view. You know, if there if there was some non-human intelligence, the same would apply if we actually made contact with an alien intelligence. The aliens might have something to say about every aspect of our society. So that's an interesting, it's interesting how fundamental that is. Well, AI is my obsession. Um, I'm going to resist going on about it, though, for a bit. I read something this morning that you had written, and I would describe it as um, an epistemological apocalypse brought on, <laughs> yeah. brought on by artificial intelligence. We're in the early stages now, you know, with deep fakes, um, and we're, you know, AI chatbots have just made enormous leaps in the last year, and they really do seem like there's somebody there now. And I know we're still very early in this progression and that it is speeding up. I used to be a singularitarian. Uh, that was before the peak oil thing. You know, I, I was a techno utopian and a singularitarian. And then I became a doomer. And then when I came out of doomerism, I didn't just snap back, you know, to techno utopianism. <laughs> now I'm just a damn, it's all very complicated. And I'm just going to kind of sit back and watch all the neat stuff emerge and, and not really place a whole lot of my chips on any bet about the future. You wrote this piece, and I, I can't bring the title to mind, so let me oh, just ask An you. Oral History of the End of Reality, with reality in quotes. <laughs> of course. Yes. <laughs> quotes and maybe an asterisk and a footnote. <laughs> yeah. About that. So um, let me just have you talk about uh, what you foresee. First, how old is that essay? So that was written in the summer of 2017. Okay. It was written after Adobe gave a public demo of their voice cloning software where mm -hmm. they trained a network on 20 seconds, I think, of speech and then managed to basically cut and paste text into a passable simulacrum of someone speaking. And 
So that's when I realized that shit was about to hit the fan. And <laughs> here we are. Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Terrence McKenna and the Eschaton, which he predicted on December 21st, 2012. Oh, yeah. And uh, 2012 was the year that uh, Jeffrey Hinton and his his team wrote their paper on and published their, their findings on computer vision, which has spiraled into the whole machine learning paradigm that we're all caught up in right now, and which a lot of people who are very into AI and, you know, the search for artificial general intelligence say, this is a dead end. This is not going where we want it to go. This is this is like a bunch of parlor tricks that are neat and might end up, you know, adding some fun functionality to your favorite software, but this is not it. You know, this is the off-ramp. We need to get back on the highway toward AGI. Um, let me just ask you, you know, from your perspective in 2017, what you saw looking forward, you know, this, um, what I call epistemological apocalypse and uh, what you call the, the end of reality. Yeah. So uh, the thing about that is, you know, I, like I just mentioned a moment ago, like I was already kind of in this space of myself feeling as though I had gone down and then back up and then back into and then like thoroughly mapped in a kind of anthropological way all of these different conspiracy theory rabbit holes and you know had spent a considerable amount of the time that i was engaging with these more sort of credible and formal structures of thought and and uh, in i was also like going you know just binging on UFO disclosure interviews, you know, these like, you know, people that had claimed to have worked in underground bases and, you know, people that were on record as having, uh, you know, high, high level uh, clearances and, you know, nuclear authentication keys who were telling us these just insane things or, you know, what seemed insane at the time. And, and it's funny because around I started only having UFO experiences after I had interfaced with that stuff. And so that's a, that's an interesting wrinkle in that story. But I mean, I bring all of that up just because at the same time, I was also starting to think about transhumanism and, you know, cyborg theory as a, as a domain of media theory and as a domain of, you know, like, like people like Donna Haraway and Catherine Hales and posthumanism as a separate strain from transhumanism that's more focused on the literary deconstruction of the, the category of the human. And, so, you know, I, I was reading Kevin Kelly and, you know, Kevin, who I have, I have had on future fossils a few times and I'm about to have him on again. Like Kevin's written very interesting stuff, like what technology wants on the idea of technology as a domain, like a kingdom of life. And that comes out of this kind of thinking that is exemplified by in the, you know, in, in the living cohort, you know, people like Jeremy England, who, works on, you know, life as a thermodynamic self-organizing process and as essentially a very, very sophisticated kind of, uh, like oxidation or reduction. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a chemical phenomenon or Michael Levin who works on it as an electrical phenomenon and has done all these amazing experiments showing that you can modulate gene expression by, uh, by, applying different kinds of electromagnetic fields to developing tissue. And so you can, you can have flatworms that grow ahead on either end just by applying. It's very Frankenstein stuff, but it's, it's very promising. Um, you can induce limb regeneration in, in organisms that can't normally do it and things like this. So it's, it's wild, wild stuff. And so on the one hand, you've got, you know, this, this is the kind of, uh, landscape I'm, I'm in when I'm thinking about augmented reality and reading the works of Charles Strauss, you know, and Charles Strauss is just an absolute exemplar of this kind of, in, you know, this inducing this kind of paranoid thinking into people through very, very high technology uh, worlds in which uh, his knowledge of you know, pharmaceutical science and his knowledge of espionage and his, his knowledge of, uh, finance and, you know, automated financial systems and all of this stuff comes together in, in works like Accelerando and Glasshouse in, 
a a very sort of through the looking glass way where you know his his characters at different points find themselves in different kinds of you know cartesian prisons where they they ha- they are forced to doubt everything that they're experiencing because they are being subject to a a high level scam by more advanced machine intelligences than they themselves are and you know and in his work at one point in Acceleronda the characters are like uploads living in a virtual world on top you know on a grain of rice grain of rice sized computer flying in a, a coke can yeah. to another you know to another world and they're arguing about whether the singularity has happened exactly, <laughs> yes. exactly. and so you know for me it's like you know the, the the collapse of categories here is what i find really interesting and uh you know, when I think about what we're looking forward to, I actually have a bit more hope than, uh, f- you know, that we will find a new level uh, at which to process this stuff than I did in 2017, simply by looking at historical precedent. Um, and I bring this up on the show a lot. Jamie Stantonian has written an essay called uh, Apocalyptic Cults and Early Modern Information Uh Oh shit! Collapse or something like that. But it's it's about pamphleteering and the Thirty Years' War, and you know the 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 collapse of the Catholic Church as a unitary central center of power in Europe, and the epistemic vacuum created by that, and how you know places like Munich became these hotbeds for apocalyptic thinking, and then engaged in you know wars with the church. And in the meantime, you know, like when Francisco Varela, who is, you know, a a real uh, foundational figure in modern system sciences, was living in Chile when the United States toppled that government. And in 1973, he said you could turn on the radio station and people on two different stations in the same city would say that it was sunny outside and someone else would say it was raining. <laughs> and so. You know, and it turned out that that was actually, you know, coded communication, you know, but at the same time, it's sort of symptomatic of this broader thing that we're seeing in the world with stuff like QAnon, where the proliferation of very desperate attempts to hang on to a narrative in the wake of what Doug Rushkoff has called narrative collapse is really pronounced and increasingly dominating the sphere of public discourse and of political behavior. And so, yeah, the, the Trumpian post-truth era, right? This kind of stuff. Uh, and if, as crazy as we thought it was during Trump, it's, it's just exponentially crazier now, and it probably will just continue to get crazier. But, um, at the same time, we, you know, out of the 30 years war, and the Protestant Reformation and all of that, we got modern universities. We got the establishment of the scientific method and of the, you know, of transferable credentials between cities and institutions and these kinds of things. And I think about that a lot. I think about how, uh, you know, when I look at, I, I got people like Nick Adams, uh, Brigham Adams at Goodly Labs, who's somebody I just saw out in California at a a conference that was largely devoted to these kinds of um, ideas. You know, how do we, how do we make it through with technology into new forms of better forms of governance and of sense-making and his, his work is about crowdsourcing fact-checking in a way that incense people very smartly, I think to, uh, you know, to work together to, to, you know, like Wikipedia is the example that people always give for how these systems can self-organize and how, you know, as an, when, when truth becomes an adaptive system in this way, it's actually more, uh, it's anti-fragile, right? To use Taleb's term, like you actually, like people make attacks on it, but there's an immune system in place. And so I think what we're in the process of is, uh, you know, finding a kind of social epistemic immune system that works better than the institutions that have been challenged by this legitimacy crisis over the last few decades. 
And that's where I'll leave it. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I invite Kevin to weigh in on this because I know he thinks about this stuff a lot. I'm kind of a gadfly and I'm always annoying people by talking about epistemology and <laughs> how do we know what we know and uh you're you're mentioning the epistemology crisis and I I'm often sort of very concerned with with health issues and like one of the things I rant about on Facebook a lot is is uh, whether calories in equal calories out is is good health advice and there're all these Questions coming up recently, you know, uh, studies like the China study about vegetarianism can't be replicated. You know, it's it's called the replication crisis in psychology and, and in medicine. And it so what this crisis sort of meant to me was there was a point where I realized that the epistemology crisis sort of spread backwards in time as well as forward. We couldn't know for sure what went on in the past. And that led me to the realization, you know, how epistemology is also how do we name what we name and how do we put it into bins? Like the, the other popular question you see a lot on the Internet is about did medieval peasants have more holidays than you? Well, in, so, in some ways they did, but you could also say they didn't. And besides which, are you talking about medieval peasants in France or in China and in 1080 or 1580? So epistemy depends so much on how we classify things and how we put things into bins. And, and that's got to be sort of upfront when we address this crisis. You can't just elide over it and say, oh, all medieval peasants got huge numbers of holidays. It's not true when we're talking about a period that was like a thousand years long around the entire world. We, there has to be a lot more specificity and it gets annoying and people you know, snap at me when I bring up these questions, but it, they can't be avoided in my opinion. <laughs> just some name dropping time. Um, when we were... At lunch, you know, we were talking to each other and we're trying to figure out, you know, where our social systems uh, overlap. Um, I've been corresponding with Doug Rushkoff since the mid nineties, uh, since his book, um, Media Virus. Awesome. Yeah. And then I, I met him for the first time, I think in 1999, uh, in New York City. I was just visiting because I lived in Seattle at the time. And then I moved to New York City and I saw him all the time because you know, we'd always be at the same events. Um, episode number 100 of the C-Realm podcast, which I think came out in 2008 or maybe 2007, uh, was with Charles Strauss. Oh, wow. And, uh, I just, you know, like I didn't have any in with Charles Strauss, except that a C-Realm podcast listener was a personal friend of him and, you know, said, uh, Hey, you should be on this guy's show. That's awesome. And that was when I was in the beginning of my peak oil phase. <laughs> so I, I'm talking to Charles Strauss about, you know, here I, I have the opportunity to talk, uh, you know, to the author of Accelerando. We can talk about the singularity before he was sick of the topic. Right. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about peak oil. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's messed up. I, I actually, there's a guy at SFI, and I won't linger on this, but just because you, you have had him on your show. Uh, there's a, a brilliant physicist at the Santa Fe Institute, David Wolpert, who wrote the, uh, co-authored the No Free Lunch Theorems, which are uh, a, about the limits of human knowledge and and like what we can say about the world. They, they belong up there with Gödel's incompleteness theorem as like these really potent statements about the limits of science and and human thought. And David has done a lot of work on game theory also, and re has recently been working on uh, some research into how the combination of automated financial agents, autonomous agents, uh, game theory and machine learning and blockchain creates what he considers an unavoidable runaway financial apocalypse that looks like uh, these basically like machine archons skewing game theoretical payoff matrices between people that are bound by smart contracts. And so because the code is law in these contexts, then these machines that are acting on the behalf of human agents or of other machines in this sort of endless recess of fuckery uh, are capable of running the system into these kind of exponential collapse states. And I told him, I was like, have you read Accelerando? Like, have you like, this is exactly. So at one point I tried to get Charles and David to talk about this on the institutional podcast, because we've been doing research into emergent political economies and this is a serious issue. But Charles was like, absolutely not. 
I'm never speaking about this stuff again. I am like, you know, it's just like, oh man, like it's like the, the one time that someone had said that, you know, like I can remember someone saying, you know, uh, even the, the SFI prestige is not enough to convince me to talk about this. I'm so sick of it. Well, have you read the novel that he wrote with Cory Doctorow, uh, Rapture of the Nerds? It's so good. Yeah, it's it's kind of their you know nail in the coffin for that topic though. Yeah, it's like you know they've they've joined into the. Uh, uh, I wouldn't even call it a criticism. It's more of just sort of denigrating by association. It's like, oh, you guys are just being religious. Like, I can criticize the notion of the singularity, but if I do, I'm largely going to be channeling Kevin Kelly, you know, who has a much more nuanced. Uh, take on why the singularity is kind of a silly idea, you know, and it, it comes down to uh, thinkism. For those who don't know, the, the idea of thinkism uh, is is kind of ridiculing the notion that if you can replicate human consciousness and scientific, you know, research and thought in silicon and it can run, say, a thousand times faster than you do a thousand years worth of R&D in one year and things are really going to move fast. And Kevin's like, yeah, not really. Um Scientific progress requires experimentation, which is an interface with the real world, and it doesn't matter how fast your brain is running. You know, if you need to order a part from Amazon for your machine, it still takes a week to get to you, or, you know, maybe two days if you've got Prime or whatever. But, um, you know, that's that's an eternity in this machine, you know, this sped up clock speed, you know, think time. Uh, but, you know, while you're waiting for your experiment to run or while you're waiting for your, you know, glacial human assistance to set up the equipment, uh, you're not you're not doing anything really in terms of science. You're probably watching every episode of House, you know, MD, which is I, I mentioned that because uh, I've known of the show for years, but I just started watching it since I've been house sitting. So I just started with season one, episode one, and I'm just pouring through it. And I, I keep thinking I would love to send episodes of this show back in time and show it to somebody like in 1960, like show it to Arthur C. Clarke as he's writing 2001 A Space Odyssey. And like, no, th this is what the turn of the century looks like. Very impressive computer graphics, uh, very impressive, you know, medical science and advances in, in therapeutic approaches, but no flying cars, no space stations, uh, no moon colonies, none of that. You know, so the, the future y'all were predicting and which I imbibed with such gusto in my youth did not come to pass. Here's what we got, you know, and and I'm also thinking that I'm not going to curate the episodes that I send back in time. You know, I'm not going to explain, oh, this is why this happens or this is what they're talking about or this is what they're referencing. Just let them try to you know, parse it themselves with no knowledge of any of the context. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was just one of the the brilliant young researchers I was just thinking of a moment ago when I was talking about how different things are now than they were when I was that age is Elisa Mora. And she's actually an undergraduate research fellow at the Santa Fe Institute, has this amazing opportunity that was, you know, un unthinkable uh, 20 years ago. And she's working with Jeffrey West and with Chris Kempis and, and, um, others on urban scaling theory, which applies the biophysics of networks and of the flow of things through networks to, you know, that normally this is like, you know, thinking about like cardiovascular systems and some of Jeff's work with Brian Enquist and James Brown was on, I'm sure your listeners have heard about how like a mouse has the same number of heartbeats as a, as an elephant, you know, but the, they just go through a much quicker, right? Yeah. <laughs> 1.5 billion heartbeat lifespan is, is over like that. When every heartbeat is, you know, you're, you're from your heart to your, the terminal end of your capillaries is like mouse sized. Right. And so, that kind of thinking applies to cities and a lot of innovative, interesting work has been done on that. And it's relevant to a lot of this because, you know, the, the, the thing about cities is that they are uh, self-accelerating. And I talked about, you know, I've talked about this, Kevin also, uh, Kel Kelly also that, but at any rate, the, the, uh, that work, uh, that she did with them was on how it's, it's been known for years that, the 
uh, per capita wealth production of cities. And this is, this is, I'm basically just like handing you the football here, Kevin. <laughs> that, that per capita wealth production in cities is, uh, it grows super linearly. It actually grows super exponentially with scale. So a city that's twice the size of another is generating more than twice the new patents and new financial opportunities and, you know, just economic GDP stuff uh, than the smaller city. But uh, Elisa's work showed that the disproportionately that like 90% of that was going to the top decile and that the poorest people in cities are no better off and are in many cases worse off than people in smaller cities. And so uh, I was, I asked her the other day, I was like, this was yesterday. I said, have you seen that episode of Deep Space Nine with the bell riots and about San Francisco as the number Kevin's got bell riots 2024 yes. bumper sticker on my car, yes. <laughs> yes, so like, so I, I had the privilege of being able to send this, this brilliant young scientist uh, the, I think it was a Vox article on how, you know, the Star Trek episode written in 1995 predicted 2020s. It's on Amazon. I mean, anybody can watch it at any time. Hey, I think we're at about the halfway point of this discussion, which means we are going to be switching over to your podcast, which is the Future Fossils podcast. And uh, there might be a little gap in time, like a couple months. Yeah, maybe. Uh, we'll, we'll try to make it quick. But before but before we do, I mean, I really, Kevin, you this is this is your wheelhouse. I, I don't know what to say, but you, you've said it all. Yeah, the, <laughs> that episode is, is my favorite of the whole franchise. Uh, Camo and I were... It's yeah, a two-parter, isn't it? It's a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Camo and I were talking about how predictive it really was, and, and uh, you know... It, it and wasn't. <laughs> it, 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 it's gotten a few things wrong, but just the general tenor, like a lot of good predictions, you know, prediction is, is more about a signpost than it is about, you know, placing stock bets on, on what's-his-name's company. You know, there, there are some laughable things in that episode, like like how everyone has to sit at a screen to, to log on to the internet, but it did... Uh, at the same time, the cops log on to the internet by log paying for a private third party service. You know, it sort of predicted general trends about privatization, you know, these tattooed rich people in San Francisco looking down from their skyscrapers at the homeless camps, you know, and there's a lot of things in theme and in tenor that are, that are just dead on accurate, I, I feel. It didn't get all the details right, but nothing ever does, you know. All right. Well, since we've, we've touched on Star Trek, I'll just. I'm going to reserve the last word in this part of the conversation and say that um, I've absolutely hated Star Trek Discovery, and I <laughs> absolutely hated the first two seasons of Star Trek Picard. They have a new showrunner for season three. I've only seen the, the first episode, but it's good. Uh -huh. I, I'm hopeful. I think we have weathered the storm. <laughs> things are getting better now. Well, they brought back the, the next-gen interfaces. Yeah, they got everything. rid of half the cast of the first two seasons of, uh, of, but the cast wasn't the problem. Uh, anyway, cutting that short, <laughs> that, that is the spark for a rant that I just don't need to. Well, we'll get another beer in you. Maybe, <laughs> okay. We yeah. Well, that'll be on the future fossils podcast. <laughs> yeah. Did All you right. see the comment that I left on one of your videos right before coming here? You were talking today. Yeah, today. No, I didn't see so, it. So you were talking about how, um, uh, uh, AI chat would revolutionize the search engine industry. And I pointed out my, my brother, the professional translator that I mentioned before, his axiom is anything is progress if it makes us look more like Star Trek. Ah, <laughs> and if, right. if you ask the computer a question in Star Trek, the computer doesn't respond with eight different links. Here's links to all these No, studies. it tells you the answer. Says, yeah. yeah, this is the answer. And, and that has to be synthesized. And then I also you know, commented, uh, an epistemological comment on that. You know, in Star Trek, if you say, what are the effects of Berthold rays on human tissue? The computer says, well, Berthold rays cause cancer and genetic damage. It would probably serve us better if the computer said, uh, most scientists agree <laughs> Berthold rays cause cancer. <laughs> A minority criticize the studies as having small uh, sample size and demographic skewing. <laughs> the computer never says that on Star Trek, but it's something we should consider. <laughs> That's And that, to wrap it up, is... Where I hope people left an oral history of the end of reality. Like, I hope that what they got out of that, because a lot of people have written me after reading that and said they were just unsettled. And I was like, but, but, but the, I'm raising my hand. Yeah. But the, the point, <laughs> the point of that 
was to say that we go through a phase transition and that we end up somewhere like what you just described, where we no longer make these confident claims about a naive realism, but we say we find ways to communicate our actual confidence in the claims that we're making as part of the inherent syntax of those claims. And, you know, Stuart Firestein, uh, who's the uh, dean of biology at uh, Columbia University, I believe, he gave a great talk at SFI last summer. Uh, he's also on the, the faculty there, and he, he gave a great talk on uncertainty. He's written three books now on failure, ignorance, and uncertainty. Yeah, and that talk was about how uncertainty is the basis for philosophical optimism, because in order to have optimism, you need to believe that things can be different than they are. And so he's like, actually, the thing that most people don't like about science, the way that it hedges its bets, the way that it, it you know, you you have epistemological humility baked into it, at least when it's done right, mm -hmm. uh, is what actually makes it great. It's actually what, you know, what allows us to be, uh, to, to believe that we may know the world better and we may live in the world better than we do now. And so, you know, we had an interesting thread in the in-house email server after his talk about how would we actually do this in practice, like in text, you know, like if you imagine if you read the news and any time there was some kind of statistic that the P value for the, that claim was visualized in the blurriness of that text opposed to like the rest of the sentence is in perfect clarity. But then if you're making some some like sketchy, difficult to replicate, you know, uh, possibly error laden claim, then it's going to be visibly less confident than the other claims that you're making. And of course, the problem with that is that there are, uh, there's not just one way to measure confidence statistically and like, how do you distinguish them? And, you know, but anyway, so I think you're onto something, Kevin. I think that that is, that is, I would love to see a satire, uh, of, of Star Trek in which, you know, somebody's just rolling their eyes, listening to the computer explain, you know, that like, I can't act, you know, they're giving the actual like scientific advisor thing, right? Like something that came up. They're, they're couching everything in Bayesian terms. Right. 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 <laughs> or like, like, uh, uh, I think it was Harry Truman that Stuart Firestein quoted where he said, uh, all of these, all of these scientists are saying, well, but on the other hand, he's like, get me a scientist with just one hand. <laughs> no other hands, please. Yes. I, I could put a little bow on this whole thing with a little bit of woo-woo, if you don't mind. Go for it. You were talking about an epistemological immune system and, a, and some component of that. I don't know how this works. I don't know what to suggest. Some component of that has to be compassion. Because the thing that, that human compassion, the thing that pisses me off most is when epistemology is used as a club. You know, I, I mentioned fat and weight loss. That's the thing that, that one of my all-time pet peeves is when someone says, oh, well, if you're fat, then you must not have been exercising. You don't know that. So somehow, you know, you know, computers don't do compassion real well. Somehow the human element of compassion has to be in there. We're saying, you know, the theory says this with some sort of allowance. Well, if you tried this, then there are some other possibilities. You know, there, there has to be some sort of intelligence guiding the compassion to say that we're not fighting about facts most of the time you know we're fighting about human issues and or you know some sort of flag that says you know we've, we've left the realm of science and math and we're talking about human and social issues would be a big help yeah well kevin michael by the way kevin Michael is my first and middle name. <laughs> wow, We've got some hilarious. sort of unholy trinity going on <laughs> yes. here. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. This is awesome. This is a great pleasure. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this first installment of the KMO Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you want more of this conversation because there's about an hour and 45 minutes yet to come. Uh, and that will be on the Future Fossils podcast. I don't know what number or what date it will be available. But if you follow me on either Twitter or YouTube or my Patreon feed, I will let you know as soon as it is available. 
And I imagine that more than a few of the people hearing my voice right now on this podcast are regular listeners to the Future Fossils podcast. And you really won't need any any notification from me when the rest of this conversation is available. All right. I do have a tendency to blather on at the end of podcasts. Uh, I'm not going to do that in this one. I will just point you to a few places on the web. I've already mentioned my Patreon feed. You don't have to be a paid supporter on Patreon to get value out of my Patreon feed. I post a lot of stuff there for free, including links to anything I put up on YouTube, or also I post a lot of links to things that I've been reading. I'll also be posting links to new KMO Show episodes there, and that might be a good place to post any comments that you have on the show. You know, particularly if you want to interact with other listeners, that's where you'll find them. All of these shows will also be posted to YouTube, and that's probably another good place to uh, comment and read comments from other people and maybe strike up a conversation. My YouTube channel is called Out of My Head. That's O-U-T-T-A-M-Y-H-E-A-D. But I know that there's a lot of channels called Out of My Head, and just searching for that, you probably won't find it. So what I would recommend that you do if you want to check out my YouTube content is go to my Patreon. It is patreon.com slash KMO, and there's plenty of links there to YouTube content that I have put up. All right, that's just about it. But before I go, I want to acknowledge that the new theme music for this podcast is by Holizna, and it is used by permission. I will post a link to Halizna's music in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at kmo.show. All right, that's it for this first episode. I don't have a second interview recorded or even lined up at this time, but it is my ambition to get this show out on a weekly basis. And for years, I put the C-Realm podcast out on Wednesday, so I'm going to stick with that. Look for a new show here every Wednesday. I hope that you will join me regularly, and until I put up that next episode, I hope that you will stay well. <laughs>